Hello, everyone, and welcome to the State of Sport Management, a podcast with Dr. Matthew Hummel coming from the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's this week's episode. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of State of Sport Management. We have a special treat, something that we haven't done before, but the great and infamous Dr. Kyle Rich at Brock University has reached out to me. We've known each other for a while, but he was able to secure a knowledge translation grant with him and his colleagues at Brock University, and they are really going over some great topics, and I thought it would be a great partnership that we could have with the podcast where we could hear a lot of the topic exploration, the, the, the work that they're, him and his colleagues are doing to learn more about essentially what's going on. And also it'd be great education for us and my audience essentially to learn a little bit as they're going through all this. So getting that kicking off, we have soon to be PhD candidates. We'll say soon to be Dr. Caroline Hummel joining us today. So uh, Caroline, how's it going? It's going great. Uh, doing a podcast like this, I joked around with my supervisor, Dr. Corliss Bean, as well as Dr. Kyle Rich, that this has been something that has been on my academic bucket list for a while. So really <laughs> excited to make this dream a reality today. So thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, no problem. And as always, I match what my salary is for these to all my guests. So I obviously, Caroline will be making nothing from this, but it'll be great yeah. learning for all of us. Uh, but to give some background, Caroline, as I mentioned, is a PhD candidate in the Applied Health Sciences program at Brock University, yeah. and her research is really focused on mentorship, positive youth development, and program evaluation within that sport and rec se- uh, sector. Now, she also talks about she has a little bit of out of her outside of her study. So, Caroline, can you talk a little bit about these, like what you do outside of your studies? Yeah, absolutely. So evaluation is just one part of what I do, you know, with my research, but I'm heavily involved in program evaluation outside of my studies as well. So I work part time with the Youth Research and Evaluation Exchange currently as a research assistant. And part of my role with that organization, and maybe to just give a little bit of context behind what our organization is first, is it's an organization where we work with Ontario's youth serving sector to help them build their capacity for evaluation and research. And we do that through a bunch of different ways, but the way that I help out with our organization is I lead a lot of our evaluation capacity building opportunities. So this includes things like workshops, online webinars, and we also offer free online certification programs for evaluation, which are really awesome. More recently with our organization, I've been involved in the consulting side. So we offer free evaluation consulting for youth sector organizations. And I do everything from help clients build their logic models for their evaluations to actually helping them implement the evaluations. So that's been really great having that consulting experience through YouthRex. And I also do independent evaluation consulting with sport organizations, but that is more of an as-needs basis. So what happens is sport organizations will reach out to me and ask for help with their evaluations and typically hire me on as an independent contractor. I'll do the evaluations for them. Um, And that's been really a great experience too. Some clients that I've worked with with that have been Canadian women in sport, Canadian girls baseball, Fast and Female, and Ontario Hockey Federation, to name a few. Um, And then just from kind of a community-gauged volunteer side of things, 
I am on the board of directors with BGC Sarnia Lambton, which is my hometown community. And I work directly with our executive director on our learning and impact project, which is essentially BGC Canada's national evaluation that they do every year. So myself and the ED collect the data, analyze it, and create that final report that we then submit to the head agency. So needless to say, I'm involved in evaluation uh, in many different uh, facets, but it is something that I'm really passionate about, and you'll probably learn that very quickly through our conversation today. <laughs> yeah, you you sound crazy busy, which it probably is true, but it's also kind of a lot to see all those things that you're doing, plus this PhD work. It's That's incredible. Before we jump into this, I want to geek out. We were geeking out earlier. Two Hummels on this podcast at the same time. <laughs> we have a slightly different spelling, but I think that's awesome. But mm -hmm. also Caroline played basketball. She was a former, former Division I college basketball player. So, and we joked about, you said you weren't, or you played at Mount St. Mary's, but you said you didn't know a ton about the school going in. So tell us a little bit about maybe that recruitment or trying to learn a little bit about where you were thinking about going to school. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love whenever I tell people I played at the Mount, which is what I'll refer to. That's our short form of Mount St. Mary's because it can be a bit of a mouthful. Uh, I love asking, you know, have you heard of it? And then you see a little bit of panic, like, oh, no, I haven't heard of it. But then it's like, it's okay. I never heard about it myself until they recruited <laughs> me. Um, so, yeah, I grew up playing basketball my whole life. Always had aspirations of playing at the Division One level. Um, and, you know, they were one of the schools that was recruiting me over in the States. And I was very focused on my academics, uh, even, you know, throughout my high school years. So I ended up deciding on going there because they are a smaller school. So class sizes were great. I think the most I had in a class at one time was like 28 students. So uh, I was able to build quality relationships with my professors, which certainly goes a long way when you are an athlete and you're on the road so much and missing classes and things like that. Um, but, you know, through my relationships with my, with my professors in the psychology department, which is what my undergraduate degree was, uh, I was introduced to sports psychology. Um, and that's kind of how my love for sports psychology grew was during my senior year and my undergraduate honors thesis project. And that's what propelled me to kind of, you know, look more into doing this longer term um, and looking into graduate school, which is how I ended up coming back to Canada uh, in doing my master's at Queen's University in sports psychology. And inevitably, here I am still doing it to this day, just at Brock now. Yeah, no, awesome. I think there'd probably be a cool little study about people getting recruited at non-Power 5 schools, and they're having to learn on the fly about the school that maybe they've never paid attention mm -hmm. to or watched them play in a game. But now it's like, okay, now I have to learn as everything I can about the mount. And if it's a good fit for me and that coach also has to convince them that this area or this university you've never thought about before they connected with you is the right place for you. Like I'm sure you had to go through a lot of those thought processes as well. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Just as much as the coaches are kind of interviewing you, you're doing the same thing as a prospective student athlete at their institution. So it was kind of cool to go through that process and have those conversations. Perfect. And so we'll jump into this. So if it wasn't uh, apparent when Carolyn was talking about her experience in school and out of school, our topic today is going to really focus on program evaluation and sport organization. So I'm going to tee us off and well, a lot of a lot of research or sport researchers partner with sport and rec organizations to test new ideas, whether that's programs or initiatives or long-term goals that they have, um, and they end up doing some type of evaluation to find out if it's a good idea. So 
Tell us a little bit about what is evaluation and how does evaluation compare to research? Yes, absolutely. So I love definitions. And when it comes to evaluation, there are so many different definitions that exist. Uh, evaluation in and of itself is almost like this umbrella term encapsulates all these different methods and approaches. But when focusing on program evaluation, uh, I like the definition that program evaluation is this process of determining the success of a program based upon predetermined metrics. And these predetermined metrics are essentially your outcomes that you would have developed way back in the program conceptualization and development phases. So I like to make the argument that this is why program evaluation is something that should be considered at every stage of the program cycle, even way back when a program actually hasn't even been implemented yet. Um, but we'll probably get a little bit into that later on uh, in our conversation. Um, but I also like to use this analogy of a camera, and I can't take credit for this because this is the analogy that we use at Youthrex. But evaluation is like a camera because it's this way of taking pictures of what's going on within your programs. And these pictures represent evidence that you can then share with other people. Uh, so whether this is internally within your sport organizations to understand how people are experiencing the programs or externally with community members or funders are um, a main external party that we like to share our evaluation findings with. Now to get to your question about, you know, how does evaluation differ when compared to research? They certainly go hand in hand, and it's it's something that in our sports sector, as you mentioned, we're constantly piloting new initiatives and programs, and we want to understand if they're working or not, right? Um, but one thing that really stuck with me throughout my master's when I took this program evaluation course uh, in the education department at Queen's was uh, my professor, Dr. Michelle Searle, said, you know, there's a huge difference between research with evaluation methods versus what program evaluation is. And she explained it as research is, or our overarching goal of, goal of research is to take our findings from you know, these evaluations we do in research and add to a generalizable knowledge base that already exists. So whether that's you know, making a contribution to the literature um, with these new findings that we have or building off of existing findings in the literature um, or using these findings to address gaps that we see in the literature, right? And making our contribution that way. Whereas when you think of program evaluation, Program evaluation is specific to a specific program, run at a specific time, with a specific population of participants, under specific circumstances. So if you couldn't tell from that little spiel there, the specificity piece is really what separates program evaluation from broader research. Uh, and when you do program evaluation, and those findings that you get from your evaluation really should only be used to make inferences about that particular program that was evaluated. So even if there are other similar sport programs outside of your organization that, you know, have similar goals or outcomes, you know, you don't want to take those findings from your program and try to conflate them to what other people are doing, because everyone has different participants in their programs. Everyone uses different activities. Um, so anything that you get from your evaluation should only be made or only be used, sorry, to make decisions about that particular program that you evaluated. And this is also the case too for programs that are run in multiple cycles. So say you have the same program, but it's been running for 10 years. 
Well, you still want to do an evaluation each year because things change and our pandemic that just happened is a perfect example of that, right? So there are probably a lot of uh, different outcomes or adjustments that happened in a program that was run in 2018 compared to that same program that may have been run by a sport organization in 2021, right? So you probably get very different evaluation findings uh, from those programs, even though they're the same type of program per se, right? So this is why um, evaluate, program evaluation itself, all those findings should just be made about that one program. Whereas if we start to extend those findings out into the community or into the literature, that's when we're more so doing evaluation that or research with evaluation methods. So that's just one distinction kind of like to provide. Um, I see a lot in sport, we even have journal articles where it'll say program evaluation of X right in the title. Uh, so it's more so being mindful of the language moving forward. So rather than saying program evaluation, you know, maybe you're doing an examination of X program or assessing the effectiveness of this program, so on and so forth. And I know this is a, well, I guess when I think of evaluation, I'm trying to think of this from a practical standpoint for putting our, our listeners into the seat of what are some things that maybe sport management programs, or if you could even just give us one example of something that they'd be evaluating. Um, and it could be just generalized, or you can even think of an experience at Brock, but like, would it be fair to say, like, if we were thinking about doing like a sport analytics certificate that we could evaluate like certain needs that would fit within that, is that fair to say, or can you expand upon that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, your evaluation options are endless. It really just depends. And it always circles back to what are those outcomes you developed back in the program development stage. Um, some common things that a lot of people evaluate, though, when it comes to their programs, and particularly within sport, are uh, process-related things like registration numbers, attendance records, uh, satisfaction. Program satisfaction is huge. Uh, but say you developed a program that you had this kind of evidence and base in mind for it, and this is more so tapping into the research side of things. Say, for example, you developed a positive youth development focused sport program. Maybe your outcomes that you evaluate it are connecting back to whatever evidence base or theory that the program was informed by. So if it's PYD focused, maybe you're examining athletes' development of their competence, confidence, connection, and character from pre-program to post-program. So again, it ultimately the outcomes will differ between each program and between each organization. Um, but really, you know, whatever those outcomes are is what you would be using to then guide those evaluation practices that you would then be using. So perfect, Caroline. I think that does a great job for teeing us off on this next thing is we understand now what is evaluation, how is it a little bit different than the research? We've done an example. So now the question is, is I'll act like I'm the curmudgeon faculty member. Why are we doing evaluation? Why is this important? Why should we do this? Yeah. So evaluation in the you know shortest way to put it is important because without it, we would never know if what we were doing is working or not. And not just like if it's working or not, but you know how and why something is working or not working. So it really gives us that rich data to understand like what is actually happening within these programs, so that we're able to make those adjustments to them moving forward, um, or potentially you know share those success stories of programs that are working. And this is really important in sport because like we're seeing so many more initiatives being piloted. And three areas that come to mind right away are, you know, coach education, 
concussion prevention and awareness. And then the really big one now is gender equity. So piloting these new initiatives uh, to help address these gaps within those spaces. And we need to do evaluation of these new initiatives because, you know, are they worth investing more time, energy, and resources into? Um, so this is what evaluation can tell us and can give us that understanding. But as I kind of hinted at earlier, I'd argue that evaluation is necessary at all stages and it's necessary to do on a consistent basis because we do wanna stay on top of our programs in this ever-changing landscape that we know of sport uh, and make sure that our programs are staying relevant to those groups that we're serving. But just some other reasons why it's really important um, aside from you know, the learning of how and why our programs are working or not working is that it helps us understand how we can improve or refine our programs for the future. Uh, it allows us to understand, you know, like what are those successes related to our program implementation, but then also like what are those cautionary tales? Um, so not only like what's necessarily not working, but like why is it not working? And can we share a little bit of our insight with others so that they're not making the same mistakes we are when they're going to implement similar initiatives? And then probably the biggest reason why it's so important, and this is across the board, not even just within the sports sector, is that evaluation helps us secure funding. And this is honestly, when I work with clients uh, or when I talk with people engaged in evaluation, this is the number one driving factor. It's the reality that a lot of funders require evaluations to be done because of course they wanna understand if their money is being well spent, right? Um, but then it also helps organizations get some data that they can then use to, you know, highlight the impact of their programs so that they can also apply to new funding opportunities or create um, sustained funding for themselves. So funding is probably one of the driving factors. Um, but really, we should just be doing evaluation because, like I mentioned at the beginning, we will just be running on the spot, never reaching our destination if we are not evaluating these initiatives and programs. We need to understand how, why, and you know what's working within our programs. Yeah, and I think this goes back to evaluation seems like you, you mentioned great benefits that evaluation provides you an incredible amount of information that's valuable to making a decision. And that just ties in that connection between evaluation and decision-making that you need this mm -hmm precipice of information to make that decision, whether you're a big program or small program, you always need information to kind of help make that best decision. So speaking or thinking about that, like I know you talked or you've done this study in 2021 on exploring Canadian sports stakeholders perspectives on value evaluation practices. Can you tell us a bit about that or give us some background? Because I think that will tie in together, rate the why, what is this and why is it important to our readership or listener to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll share some great news. So we actually just received acceptance of this paper into Managing Sport and Leisure Journal on Wednesday. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, I'll put out the little uh, plug that, you know, I'll, I'll talk about a summary of our findings from that paper right now. But if you do want to read more about it, it should be available within the next couple of months. So that's very exciting to get that news. Um, but yeah, this was a study that I did with my supervisor, Corliss, as well as our colleague, Dr. Mashi Sheikh, who's now at the University of British Columbia. 
And we went into this research really just exploratory. And, you know, we were coming into it with backgrounds in evaluation because Corliss and Maggi are also heavily involved in evaluation from a practical standpoint. Uh, but we wanted to hear from those on the ground, you know, within the sports sector uh, to hear their perspectives on not only how they were approaching evaluation before the pandemic, but, you know, how or did the pandemic impact their evaluation practices and what does evaluation look like for the future of, you know, use for organizations. So what we ended up doing was we interviewed 28 um, participants who were from sport programs that are there, sorry, programs that provide or support sport related programming. And we got a really diverse range of perspectives. So we talked with people who were frontline staff within their organizations. So like coaches and program facilitators and coordinators, all the way up to high level management staff, like managers and even some executive directors. And we also gathered perspectives from individuals that were from grassroots sport organizations, all the way up to national and provincial level sport organizations. And one of the cool things too, in terms of like who our participants were is we spoke with funders of sport programs in Canada. So it was really nice to have their perspective included because I feel like there's a tendency to be really intimidated by your funding body or your funding agency. Um, so we have some really nice quotes including the study from our funders who are basically saying, you know, like we're here to help the organizations that we do fund when it comes to evaluation. We're very lenient and understanding you know, just keep that open line of communication with us and we're there to help you. So that was really nice to have that included. Um, but in terms of what our findings were, so we had five main themes that came out of our research. Our first one being just a general discussion around like, what does the landscape of sport look like? Uh, and, you know, how were you approaching evaluation before the pandemic? So some of our participants spoke about how pre-pandemic, they already had a really low capacity for evaluation. So it wasn't something that was always a priority for them because they were focused on putting their energy and resources into other areas of their organization. And you hear that phrase a lot in the nonprofit sector of wearing multiple hats. So that was definitely true for a lot of our participants who were in those like grassroots to uh, mid-level sport organizations. Uh, but then we also had some sport stakeholders who talked about evaluation was embedded within their organizations. And it's something that's always kind of been a priority for them, um, even more so as the pandemic happened, which kind of segues into the next three themes, which all revolved around, you know, how our participants adapted their evaluation planning, implementation and dissemination strategies with the onset of the pandemic. And one of the really cool findings that came under this is our participants spoke about this kind of newfound appreciation for the psychosocial side of sport. Um, it was something that, you know, they always knew sport had this positive impact on athletes' mental health and well-being and things like that and their social skills and development. But they didn't realize how much it impacted that until they saw their participants were no longer able to access sport or engage in programming with the cessation uh, of sport during the pandemic. So 
because they had this kind of newfound appreciation for it, this was also reflected in their evaluation practices. So they talked about how they were being more aware of how they needed to capture more of these psychosocial outcomes of sport moving forward in their programs, instead of just kind of focusing traditionally on performance related outcomes of their programs, which was kind of nice to hear. And that was, like I said, an unexpected finding that came out of our study that we, we weren't anticipating. And then finally, our study just wraps up with some recommendations based upon what our participants shared of how we can kind of move the sector, the sports sector forward with evaluation practices uh, and priorities and things like that. So we've already developed some knowledge products on what those recommendations are to make it accessible to individuals within the sports sector. Um, so for instance, we published a blog with the Sport Information Resource Center of these three recommendations that we developed. So that's something um, that if listeners are interested in reading about that, it can be found directly on their website. But again, as I mentioned at the beginning, we do have that article that will hopefully be coming out within the next little bit. So you'll be able to see all of that great stuff in there. Yeah, and this will be good. This will be well-timed, I think, when this comes out. The first time it should be around that time. But if not, if people don't have access, obviously you can connect with Caroline on Twitter or just via email, and she can probably send you a version of the manuscript to, to make sure that you're kind of getting some of that. Absolutely. But Caroline, going from a lot of that information, especially talking about these sections within evaluation, can you talk about, broadly speaking, what are the different types of evaluation that exist for organizations or even for stakeholders? Absolutely. So there are a couple of different types of evaluations that are out there that you've probably heard of, but the two most popular ones and the two ones that sport organizations are likely going to engage in the most are process evaluations and outcome evaluations. So process evaluations, as the name kind of implies, are focused on those process-related aspects of your program. So this is what I mentioned earlier about, you know, registration numbers, attendance, satisfaction. These are all things that are process-related data. And the cool thing about process evaluations is that they can be done during a program. Um, so they don't have to just be done at the end. They give you that data that allow you to make quick adjustments on the fly while a program's running. So to give just a little example of how that could look, say you're running uh, a sport program that has one session per week and the sessions are an hour long. After each session, you collect some feedback, whether formally or informally, from your participants on how satisfied they are with the sessions. And a couple of the first sessions in, you start to notice that your participants are saying, you know, like, we're not really happy with them. And you start to probe a little bit deeper and you find out that your participants are saying the sessions are too short, like the hour it's not giving us enough time to really like get into the sessions and like build those connections with our, our teammates and things like that. So what can you do as a program facilitator? Well, you can bump up the time of the sessions, having that feedback that you were just given. So say you start running the remaining sessions as an hour and a half versus just an hour. And then again, you're collecting that feedback from your participants and you notice that satisfaction has gone through the roof. And all it took was a simple adjustment while your program was running to bump up your program session time to just 30 minutes more. And you see this huge difference in satisfaction from your participants. So that's why these process evaluations can be really handy because you don't have to wait till the program's done in order to make those adjustments um, and still be able to achieve those outcomes that you're hoping for. 
Now on the flip side, you have outcome evaluations, and these are the type of evaluations that are done at the end of a program. And these will differ between uh, programs because it's going to depend upon, you know, again, what those outcomes are per program. Um, but this is determining the overall effectiveness or success of your program based upon what those outcomes were that you established in the development phase. So um, those are your two most common types of evaluation, um, and those are the ones that often are done by sport organizations. Yeah, so we have these two major pillars, especially ongoing and active, but thinking beyond that, like, is there creative ways we can do evaluation? And maybe this requires providing listeners like a context to think about that, but what would be some creative ways to, to achieve evaluation? Absolutely. I love talking about this because it's something, you know, internally within my organization at Youthrex, something that we're really focusing on now, but just, you know, more broadly within the sports sector too, there's a push for more inclusive methods um, of data collection too with our research and these more creative methods for evaluation certainly hit the nail on the head uh, when it comes to being mindful of inclusion. And um, there are so many different <laughs> creative methods that are out there. They're still relatively new and need more research, but I can touch upon some ones that I really like and ones that I think are relevant for sport organizations to consider using. First one being this uh, activity, it's called Shipshore. So this is a movement-based data collection method uh, that can be used in research and evaluation. And what it is, is you need a larger space, so uh, large enough that your participants can move around. And maybe I should preface this or conversation by saying that some of these methods will be a little bit more catered towards youth, just because this is my area of expertise is working with youth. Uh, however, adults like games too, so you could use it with them too. Uh, but back to ship shore, so you need the large space and you'll designate one side of the space as the ship, which is anything that is a yes response. And then the other end of the space will be the shore, which is your no responses. So you have participants line up in the middle and then you'll start asking them questions about the, your pro program. So for instance, maybe you'll start off a question like, did you have fun in our program? And then you'll ask them to move to the side of the room that corresponds with their answer. So if they did have fun, they'd run to the ship side. If they didn't have fun, they'd run to the shore side. And you just make a note of, you know, how many were running to each side and you're collecting data in that way, but it's not seeming like an evaluation or data collection for your participants because it's, it's a game. It's a game-based activity. Yeah, more fun. Just, yeah, right? Yeah. And I always say, especially when working with youth, the less that you can make evaluations seem like evaluation, the better that they're going to be bought into the actual data collection process. So this is one way to do that. Uh, something just to be mindful when using a movement-based activity like this, of course, is like who you're working with. So if you have youth who have uh, physical disabilities and maybe using an activity like this uh, is not the most inclusive approach. So just, of course, being mindful of like who you'd have engaging in this activity is really important. Moving into another kind of movement-based but arts-based method is called the rotating mural, which is really fun. And you need a huge roll of paper for this, something again that you can spread out across the space. And what you'll do is you'll have your participants at a designated spot on the piece of paper. So they kind of have their own little space on the paper. And then you'll ask them to 
draw something that represents their experience in your program. So this could be images, it could be words, phrases, poetry, just have them kind of free write or draw on this little space on the paper, give them a couple minutes to do so. And then once the couple minutes are up, you'll ask them to move over to where their neighbor was on the paper and do the same thing. Draw their experience, but now they'll be adding on to somebody else's drawing. So this might evoke other thoughts or feelings that they hadn't considered about their experience, uh, help them craft some more ideas. And essentially what you do is you have everyone rotate around this piece of paper until they end up back at the beginning and you finish off with this whole completed mural that is just representing your participants' experiences in the program in a fun, creative, artistic way that you can, you know, hang up in your room or you share with others. Um, now, the one thing with any of these arts-based methods, like the rotating mural, there's always a follow-up interview component needed because, of course, as researchers, we don't want to make interpretations about what the participants are saying or what they're drawing. So for something like the rotating mural, maybe they'll want to have a focus group where you can use the mural as a prompt to guide discussion, ask the uh, participants like what they were drawing, what does this represent, uh, but then also like what were they adding to their peers' drawings, why, and again, this will just give you that like really, really rich data about their experience in a non-traditional way, um, aside from just doing say like a traditional interview. The next two that I'll talk about are kind of more advanced and I won't spend too much time talking about photo voice just because I feel like that's something that a lot of people are familiar with, um, but it's certainly something that we can use in our evaluations. Uh, so depending upon what your organization's capacity is like, if you can provide disposable cameras or digital cameras, or uh, if you have consent for participants to use their phones throughout the program, then you know encourage them to take those photos that represent their experiences. And similar to a rotating mural, use those photos as prompts to guide conversation at the end uh, when you're actually trying to figure out, you know, more about what their experience was like. And the last one I'll talk about is digital storytelling, which is probably the more complex one. A little bit, if you want to work with youth, this is more catered towards older youth uh, and adults. But digital storytelling is great because it's this process of telling, representing, and constructing stories through the integration of images or sound or text to really help facilitate the creation of, you know, people's personal stories or to represent their experiences in whatever your programs are. Um, so this is something that we actually did, uh, this method, in a recent study. So my supervisor, myself, and Sarah Kramers from the University of Ottawa used digital storytelling to explore women coaches journeys to the Canada Games, which is one of our like highest uh, level amateur sport competitions that happens every year. And when I tell you the richness of the data that we got from these digital stories and like when we actually played them back, I tell you there was not a dry eye in the room. Um, it just took the data and amplified it in such an empowering and impactful way that we would have never been able to get if we just stuck solely to the interviews. So um, this is like a really fun, creative way. It, it's fun for the participants themselves to go through making these products through um, each one of these like, creative methods. So definitely something that I recommend listeners look a little bit more into um, and consider if you want to 
approach or use some of those more non-traditional ways of data collection, whether that's for research or whether that's for evaluation or both. Yeah, and you mentioned a little bit of this, Caroline, when you were giving that breakdown of all the different options is there's going to be strengths and weaknesses with each of these approaches, especially the creative ones. So mm -hmm. let's, I mean, it seems like as a given, anything new is going to be a little bit unknown that there's still lots to learn, but is there any other benefits, limitations to these newer approaches that you would make sure to mention to people that are considering them? Yeah, definitely. And I can go over, I'll start with some more of those benefits. So as I mentioned, of course, the inclusivity piece is huge. Um, but these, these approaches are can be considered equitable data collection approaches because the participants themselves are essentially viewed as co-researchers in the process because they're the ones that are also contributing their expertise uh, and they're engaged in the decision making, which is we're seeing this movement within the field to be you know, less doing research on participants and more doing research with participants. So using these more creative approaches can help ensure that we are letting them take on that role as a co-researcher in our projects. Um, you know, they are sometimes better, not only just for youth, so being mindful of some of those populations you're working with. Um, so outside of youth, these creative methods can also be inclusive for individuals who may have developmental or learning disabilities, who have trouble communicating their thoughts, feelings, um, and experiences, as well as individuals who may be newcomers. Uh, where English is not their first language. Again, it's a way to still represent their experience, but then give them a prompt that they can use in your interviews or in your conversations with them and give them kind of that extra level of comfort. And I'd say the last benefit is just, you can get some really rich data, like I was talking about with the digital stories. So they have that saying, like a picture is worth a thousand words. And that really is you know, what comes to mind when we think about some of these creative arts-based methods. Of course, as great as they are, they do not come without their limitations. Probably one of the biggest ones is concerns around privacy and confidentiality. So it can be really hard with some of these methods, especially if we're thinking about photo voice or digital stories, to ensure complete privacy and confidentiality. Um, you know, say one individual in your program has permission to uh, take photos, but then you have other youth in your program that don't consent to have their, their photo taken. So it's like, how can you navigate making sure that those youth who do, don't consent to having their photo taken, like that they're not in the photos of those who do have consent. So things like that you wanna consider. Uh, next, and I touched upon this a little bit, when I was talking about the methods is that they're highly open to interpretation. So you really have to let the creator of whatever the artistic product is lead the conversation so that you as the researcher aren't making assumptions about what they've drawn or what they've produced or what they've taken a photo of. Big one too for youth is just the technical skills uh, and resources. So you know, not everyone is an expert in how to create a digital story. Um, and it can seem a little bit intimidating or overwhelming. And that's something we certainly found in our study that, you know, we had full-blown adults who were very intimidated by, you know, creating a digital story just because they've never, you know, used storytelling software or things like that before. But 
if you are opting for these approaches, you want to make sure that you have expertise in doing them so that you can be that source of support and guidance for your participants. Uh, and you kind of touched upon this at the beginning there, Matt, that we don't have a lot of research around these creative methods. So there's still something that are newer and could benefit more uh, research into them as we go about using them for sure. And to take all these benefits, limitations, approaches, what are some like simple recommendations that you'd make for either the people, the practitioners, the researchers who are wanting to share these evaluation findings in ways that'll make sure they get across to their stakeholders or the people that they are know important? Like what would be your recommendation to those folks? Yeah, it's one thing to do the evaluations, right? But it's like, how can we get these findings out to the people that want to hear about them or to the groups that it matters for, right? So I have three recommendations for this. And my first one is being know your audience. So before you even create your dissemination products or your knowledge translation mobilization products, uh, however you want to phrase it, you want to first have an understanding of who you want to share your evaluation findings with, and then create a plan of like how you're then going to create the products to cater to those different populations. So for instance, um, maybe one of your target groups is your funder and your funder gave you an evaluation reporting template already. Or uh, if they didn't give you a reporting template, usually funders like finalized reports that include an executive summary and recommendations moving forward. So that's a product that you could create for that particular audience. Whereas if you're trying to share your findings with uh, youth athletes in your organization. Maybe an infographic with lots of color and a quick snapshot of the main findings from the evaluation or powerful quotes is going to reach them a lot better because I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, trying to get me to read a 50-page report was not going to happen. <laughs> so um, <laughs> making sure that you're creating products that are relevant and accessible to your groups is my first recommendation. Now, second recommendation uh, kind of goes right off of that first one. And once you have your knowledge product created, you then want to select your appropriate communication channel. So again, if you're debriefing with a funder, maybe you're going to schedule an hour block uh, in your calendar to sit down and talk with them about what's in the report or do some kind of presentation. Whereas if you want to share that infographic with your athletes, we know a lot of youth are on social media nowadays. So posting that infographic on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, you know, find where they're most accessible and then disseminate the product through that appropriate channel. And then my last recommendation uh, is more so if you're still kind of struggling a little bit to figure out how to disseminate your evaluation findings effectively. And that is to not be afraid to reach out to help. Program evaluation and consulting is an entire field of its own for a reason. And that's because there are resources and people out there that are willing to help you with those things, you know, whether that's reaching out to me specifically for help with this or reaching out to larger organizations like Youthrex, who you can set up a consultation call with you and talk about what that support could look like. The resources are out there, they're available, and we are certainly willing to help those individuals who need it um, when it comes to support for evaluation. So those are my top three recommendations for how we can kind of get evaluation findings out there uh, effectively. 
And Caroline, to kind of wrap us up on this topic, how do we how do we make evaluation more of a priority in the sports sector? And you can either take this from the practitioner side or research side or both. I mean, whatever's up to you, but it feels like at times it happens a lot. And other times, other areas, we see a mistake or a poor decision made based on a lack of evaluation. So how do we make it more of a priority? I don't know. And I love this question. And I can answer it from both like wearing both the researcher and practitioner hat, because this is something that, you know, my supervisor and I and our colleagues have always talked about, but it's also one of the main findings that came out of our paper. So that was kind of nice to see. Um, and that it's this notion of building evaluative thinkers within your organizations. And when I say evaluative thinking, evaluative thinking is essentially this process of consistently and critically reflecting on how and why you engage in evaluation. So why should sport organizations build evaluative thinkers? Well, we know that when we're doing evaluation, we know that in the sports sector, again, a lot of organizations are not-for-profit. So we want to ensure that like, we're using our resources most fruitfully, especially when there is a scarcity of resources or we're already operating with low capacity for evaluation to begin with. So when you're building evaluation capacity in your organizations, you're trying to build these evaluative thinkers, the first thing you want to do is provide acknowledgement and recognition to those individuals within your organization who play an important role in evaluation and maybe don't necessarily realize it. So I love when we talk with, say, like coaches um, and we tell them, like, you play an important role in evaluation. And they kind of look at you like, what are you talking about? I don't do anything with evaluation. That's our, our that's our manager. Or that's our research and evaluation specialist. They do all of that. And then you ask them, you're like, well, aren't you the one that's administering these surveys to your athletes and, you know, sitting down, helping them fill them out and then collecting them from them and giving them to your manager? And they're like, well, yeah, but I'm not analyzing or anything. And it's like, no, you, you're involved in the evaluation. You know, you are doing the data collection, essentially. And like without you helping administer those surveys and collect those surveys on behalf of your teams or your, your participants, we wouldn't be able to do the evaluation. Like you play just as important a role in the process as anybody else in your organization. And it's really nice to kind of see the wheels turning in their head and the light bulb go off. And it's like, you know, they never realized that they played this important role until that moment, until you kind of gave them that acknowledgement and recognition. And we want to provide that acknowledgement and recognition because then those individuals will be so much more bought into the evaluation process and might start to see the value of doing evaluation. And when you have people bought into something, they're that much more willing to go that extra step. Um, they're that much more willing to help ensure that like you're collecting quality data and you're producing an effective or quality evaluation. So that's why we want to first start off with that acknowledgement. But then after that too, you know, evaluative thinkers, like you need to take that team approach to it. So when you're having these critical discussions and reflecting on your evaluation practices and priorities, you want to involve everyone in it. You don't want it to just be between a couple parties. So creating that space, whether that be once a year, um, I'd recommend doing it maybe a couple times a year, where you sit down as an organization and you have those open, honest conversations about your evaluations. So essentially, you're evaluating your evaluations internally and figuring out like what's working for our evaluations, what do we need to fix to collect better evidence to share the impact of our programs, so on and so forth. And there are tons of resources that can kind of help guide these conversations. 
One that I find is really helpful is called an evaluation report card. And really what it is, is you're, you know, each member of your staff is given this report card template and they fill it out individually and they grade your evaluation practices. And then when you come together internally and have that meeting where you're debriefing and you're reflecting on your evaluations, you share each individual shares like how they graded your current evaluation practices. And it really helps kind of initiate that conversation around how you can improve and refine your practices moving forward. So that's my biggest recommendation, this whole notion of building evaluative thinkers. And I'll kind of end off on this quote that was included in our study that has still stuck with me to this day. Uh, one of our participants, when they're talking about the importance of evaluative thinking, they said, you know, you've got to be a team on evaluation. Now the evaluation is our organizations. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's everybody's. And I really thought that was such an impactful quote um, and something that, you know, really just encapsulates the importance of getting everyone on board with evaluation in order to make sure you're prioritizing quality evaluation for the future. Perfect. I think that's a great quote yeah. to end on. To tie everything together, I always try to have a fun question, Caroline. So I'm going to give you one that I haven't given to anyone else. So it's a reminder, Caroline's a PhD candidate. So she's through either all of her classes or a, a large chunk of her classes. <clears throat> yep. And so comprehensive exams. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, trust me, it's going to be about comps, so don't worry. Uh, <laughs> looking back on it, what was your like favorite PhD class? And was there... Like, so that's part one. And then part two would be, is, was there any class or like a topic that you wish maybe you had, but we, but weren't provider, didn't have time, or like maybe a topic that was expanded upon more that maybe wasn't covered as much in the curriculum? Absolutely. Does it have to just be for my PhD or could I use my master's as well? Let's focus on the PhD because I okay. think this is something I've been talking to a lot of people with about like, hey, what's been missing? Like, what do you wish you had a class on? Yeah. Um, but if you want, so you can answer that and then we could do the master's if you're like, hey, I really wish, or I really want to talk about this too. No, actually, no, I'll focus on PhD. So my favorite class that I took was definitely, uh, it was called Advanced Qualitative Methods uh, Research with Children and Youth, I believe. So I had already taken my, uh, like my prerequisite quant and qual courses during my master's at Queen's. So when I got to Brock, I was able to take an elective from a different department. So I saw this one and I was like, you know, because my dissertation will primarily be qualitative and I plan to work with youth, I was like, oh, this this would be a great class, probably really relevant to take. Perfect. Uh, and it was, it was, I learned a lot in it. Um, some considerations a lot around, you know, being mindful of like when you're doing research with youth, like what are a lot of those ethical considerations that you need to be aware of and how to like work with parents um, as you're going throughout doing your qualitative research and, um, you know, confidentiality and anonymity, things like that. So I really love that course. Um, and something that was covered in that course that, you know, lends into your next question of like, what type of course would I love to have had is we engaged in a lot of discussion around like reflexivity in the research. And I was like, so new to all of that. And, I wish that I had like a whole course on, you know, how to be self-reflexive as a researcher, like what are ways that you can consistently be revisiting your reflexivity. I've of course been doing a lot of reading on it in my own time um, to be mindful of that, but it's certainly something that I think 
other students as well, especially those that are engaging in qualitative work, could benefit from having like a whole course on that. Uh, and the professor of my advanced qual course, she actually serves as the external on my committee. And it's something that she pushes me a lot to think about too. And I, you know, um, we have a lot of conversations about how to be more like self-reflexive and uh, reflecting on your positionality and how that plays a role in your research. So I feel like she could teach a whole course on that herself. Um, but yeah, that's certainly something that I wish that I had like another dedicated course to just to like engage more in that really, really important reflection um, in my own research process and, you know, how my identity connects to what I'm doing and things like that. Awesome. Well, thanks, Caroline. I, I appreciate you kicking us off here, talking kind of through a lot of this material. I love that we started the program evaluation, which for many times can be the first step. So this is kind of a great lineup with that. But yes, thank you for taking some time out and talking to us a little bit about program evaluation. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And I'll just reiterate that, you know, if any listeners do need some help with their evaluation practices, um, please definitely reach out to me. More than happy to have those conversations um, or reach out to UthRex too. Um, the resources are there. Are there. We're, we're here to support you. Um, but thank you so much, Matt, for having me on here. I could talk your ear off about evaluation all day. <laughs> anyway. So um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to do a little bit of that today. I think before I let you go, Carolyn, how can people reach out to you? Can you just provide maybe um, like social media or email that they would be able to connect with you to at least talk or connect on program evaluation? Yeah, definitely. So Twitter, I feel like Twitter is just like this major networking space for academics now. But yeah, you can reach out to me on Twitter. My uh, username is Caroline Hum. So C-A-R-O-L-I-N-E-H-U-M. Or you can send me an email too. Email works just as great. And my email is he20ad at brocku.ca. So B-R-O-C-K dot or U dot C-A. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, and then last thing, Caroline, are you going to be at an upcoming conference at all that maybe people are listening to this so that they could meet with you and spend some time talking or listening to a presentation you might be giving? Yeah, so my supervisor and I, Dr. Corliss Bean, will be in uh, Montreal um, end of May for, we're doing a whole workshop on program evaluation, and it will be part of NASM's pre-conference activities, I believe. Um, so definitely register for that if you want some more learning around evaluation. Um, Corliss is 10 times more knowledgeable than I am. So she'd be really even better to hear about evaluation practices from in the sports sector. So again, that's before NASA. And uh, I forget the exact dates, but I think it's May like 30th, perhaps, is what it's we're May, doing. It. So the conference is listed as May 31st to June 3rd, but that could mean that the pre-conference stuff will be May 30th, like you mentioned. Um, but for anyone that isn't familiar, if you haven't gone to NASM or maybe this is your first time or maybe you haven't even gone to the pre-conference stuff, NASM usually has a couple more topic intensive, bigger timeline activities that they'll do the day before the conference kicks off. And so whether that's May 30th, we are actually recording this as if NASM's schedule hasn't been out. But probably by the time you're listening to this, you can go the nasa.org website, check out the conference, and you'll be able to look down and find Caroline's name uh, under the academic program and program summary. 
But for any of you who haven't gone to the pre-conference, not only will Caroline's project be out there, sometimes you've done like a NASA uh, past president's workshop and they get to choose a topic that'll be interesting to you. So there's actually some really interesting stuff. And I know it's expensive to travel for NASA, especially with registration costs. So maybe you can't fit in an extra day. But if you can and you're thinking about before or after, I definitely would recommend that before because you can still do all the sightseeing you want, but then you still can get some presentation topics that maybe people aren't going to be as heavily attended, but you'll get some great content and great folks that are really presenting you with some content you wouldn't necessarily see at NASA because it's going to be very much more empirical. These are going to be more workshops is what I'd call them, but they can be fantastic. I mean, is that fair to say all that, Caroline? Yeah, for sure. And I just double checked it's the 31st and yeah, I'll just be there for the 31st, I believe, but definitely connect and <laughs> right. you know, I can give you some great recommendations on uh, good food and things to do in Montreal. I've been there, I swear, the last like two years, every single conference has been in Montreal. But uh, oh, nice. for the American listeners on the call, please don't go to McDonald's for your poutines. Hit me up and I can give you some good recommendations on the actual good places to go for that. So, <laughs> All right. Well, at least, Caroline, you're going to get a message from me probably a week before and be like, okay, where should, where should <laughs> yeah. I go? All right. Well, thanks, Caroline, for joining us again for this episode of Spaceport Management. For the listeners, awesome. Thank you. We're going to have a couple more that are coming up, at least two, if not um, three, that will be uh, going on within this. We potentially have two presenters that will be doing one combined podcast recording, but it'll be some really interesting stuff. And I also think these will be very timely. Uh, there'll be something that even if you maybe aren't interested now as a doc student, maybe in program evaluation, if you become a faculty member or you start working in the old academic career, Maybe this evaluation stuff will really hit home. So these conversation points, we try to keep them so they won't necessarily be uh, ex ex like an expired conversation. All these things we mentioned will kind of last for a long time. So again, thanks everybody for listening and I hope you join us for the next episode.